You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hoof Care Essentials Foundation partner, Helper Medic Products. This next podcast was recorded pre-COVID. I went to the States in 2020 and I recorded lots of podcasts. So thank goodness for that because I had a few in the bank that I was able to use. I went to the Kentucky Farrier School and I spoke to Mitch Taylor, somebody I've known since probably about 1988, something like that. But you know, it's an amazing thing about these podcasts. I learn something new about people that I thought I knew well. And there's a couple of things in this that come out, uh, not least um, the way Mitch dealt with career-threatening injury and how he got to where he was with the school, which is probably a real, I don't know about probably, is certainly a leading educational establishment in farriery in the world. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you any more about it. Listen to the podcast and find out all about Mitch Taylor and his life. I've come to Kentucky with the Worship Company of Farriers examination team and we've just finished a session of exams at the Kentucky Horseshoeing School and I couldn't miss the opportunity to speak to Mitch Taylor uh, about his life as a farrier and especially as uh, running a school uh, here in the USA. So the first thing is Mitch, thank you for doing the podcast. My pleasure. now, you, you grew up in Colorado? So I, I say I'm born in Colorado and raised in Montana. Okay. So because my mother comes from a, a large family of 15 children, all ranchers, up in the northeastern part of Montana. And so uh, although I was born and, and lived in Colorado every minute I could, uh, every summer I could, I would go up and spend time with all my cattle ranching uncles and cousins and that's where I fell in love with with large animals. So how early were you riding? Oh, little kid, you know, six, eight years old when I would go up on vacation with my family up to Montana. There was always horses or ponies around that they'd let us hop on and experiment on. Never really had any formal training in riding or or in horsemanship, quite, quite frankly. Well, not everybody had to go to a, right. an equine school. I mean, if you're brought up with them, then, then you're going to learn more. So, uh, how long did you live in Colorado for? Well, let's see. I was born there in Denver in, in 57 and uh, graduated high school there. Yeah. <clears throat> and as soon as I got out of high school, um, I, I, actually, I went to work for a geophysical company uh, that, that summer and and fall and early winter where we were <clears throat> a seismograph <clears throat> excuse me the seismograph crew so we were out looking, looking for oil, oil yeah. so we worked all over New Mexico and uh, Wyoming and Montana 
And so after uh, a few months of that, I went to farrier school in Steamboat Springs. So I guess I was uh, 18 years old when I when I went to finally went to farrier school because I graduated from high school at 17, and I served my apprenticeship in Southern California for my my mentor was uh, Robert, and um, uh, he was just a, a great farrier, uh, Robert Lewis, and in Southern California in Orange County, and I stayed there and finished my apprenticeship and then came back to Colorado and set up my business. So what took you here to Kentucky? Well, um, I guess I'm, I must have just hit the kind of the farrier scene at the right time. It, things kind of t- tended to fall in place for me. I found myself surrounded by good farriers um, all, all the time, and I got real busy. Um, but being raised with the, you know, the cattle rancher mentality, my way of dealing with horses and the horses that I shod in Colorado at this time were not high-level horses. We didn't have any warm bloods. We had one little racetrack in Denver called Centennial. So I worked on a lot of ranch horses, a lot of pleasure horses, and and my way of dealing with them was through intimidation. So, you know, the, the way that I was raised uh, with horses is that, um, you know, we would... Um, turn our all of our our horses out all winter if they made it through the winter in the springtime we'd gather them up and and check them out and uh, when they were two or three years old then we would we would break them and uh breaking you know a horse involved their first contact with with people was when we would brand our uh, the calves brand the calves uh we'd bring the young horses up and uh we'd all practice our hula hands and We'd rope the, the horses uh, and, and throw them down, um, tie them up, castrate them if they're stallions, brand them, uh, vaccinate them sometimes, put a blindfold on them, and then uh, uh, throw a saddle on them and, and, and buck, try to ride the buck out of them. And, you know, you see the old classic pictures of cowboys fanning the horses with their hats. and So it was a big deal. Everyone was watching. It was a big peer pressure. and so understanding that that was one of the first uh, relationships that this horse had with a person you can see that it, it wasn't didn't build trust and so it was years after that Monty Roberts and these these horse whisperers so to speak came along and taught me how to listen to horses and, and how to figure them out better but before that happened I, uh, I uh, my clientele was were horses that um, were 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 treated that way, so I had to throw a lot of horses on the ground and shoe them, either shoe them with a leg uh, tied up or or on the ground. So that was really rough on my body. And by the time I was 25, I had blown out a disc out of my lower back, and so I had already had my college degree uh, at that time, and. Um, in biology and minored in chemistry and so I decided that I needed to take a break and let my back heal so I decided to uh, come to graduate school. My grades weren't good enough to get into CSU in Fort Collins, Colorado but they were good enough to get into the University of Kentucky so I came here to go to graduate school uh, in equine um, uh, physiology. Okay so you did an equine a master's or is that a master's degree yeah. yeah actually the master's started out in cows 
uh, and in, in reproductive physiology uh, because I at one point wanted to learn how to do embryo transfer on horses. And back then in, in the 80s, and in, in early 80s, late 70s, it was big business and cows and horses and um, uh, CSU had figured out how to do that. So I couldn't get into CSU to learn to do e equine embryo transfer. So I came to Kentucky to learn how to do bovine embryo transfer and all of that stuff. So in, in the, and I, I finished that up, got, wrote a paper that was published in the Journal of Animal Science for my research project. But while I was in Kentucky, I met a, a, a guy named Dr. Jim Rooney. And James Rooney and I hit it off really good. And he was really my mentor as far as understanding the physiology of the horse, the anatomy of the horse, uh, and the biomechanics of the, of the, you know, the, the appendicular skeleton of the horse. Well, he was one of the first guys writing about biomechanics and locomotion, wasn't he? Yep, he sure in was. In the modern era. Mm -hmm. And I have, I have that book of his, which, believe it or not, was actually written in Newmarket, because he spent some time at the Animal Health Trust. That's right. And while he was there, he wrote, wrote that book. He used to tell me about the difference in watching horses gallop on the heath versus watching them gallop here on the dirt in, mm -hmm. in Maryland, because he was from Maryland, Baltimore area, and uh, in Kentucky. Yeah. Okay, so you come to Kentucky. Yep. And you start to shoe horses here? Came to Kentucky to go to graduate school. Yeah. Um, I was married uh, at that point and um, had a, a young child, my, my eldest, Emily. And uh, yeah, I, I, I shoot horses all through college in Gunnison, Colorado, and, and I've never stopped shooing horses. So. I came to go to graduate school, but ended up uh, being immersed in the thoroughbred industry. And I can remember that my prices were, at that time, I think they were up all the way up to $28 for a full set and, and handmade shoes. I uh, used to make most of my shoes. And I show up to Kentucky and I met a guy named David Nadeau. And David Nadeau was plating racehorses with small training plates with a stall jack and trimming the hind feet for $75 a piece. And it took him all of 15 minutes to, to get one done. And I thought, aha, I need to do this. I need some of this. So I got uh, invested in and steeped in the thoroughbred industry. And one of my, um, I guess I can call him a mentor, Steve, Steve Norman, my really good buddy. Uh, and he's, he's a friend of, of a lot of people. Um, and just yeah, he's a friend of mine. Excellent guy. And Steve kind of took me under his wing and showed me the thoroughbred industry. Uh, and then I got into the thoroughbred industry and really got involved in shooting racehorses and doing a lot of farm work back then, back in the, uh, and, and that would have been the mid to late 80s. Yeah, the thing, uh, there's sometimes thought to be an equivalence between Newmarket and, should we say, Lexington area, but of course Lexington's far bigger than Newmarket, but the other difference is Newmarket is almost exclusively thoroughbreds, but this area is not like that, is it? I mean, there's a lot of thoroughbreds, but you also have a variety of other breeds. Well, we do now. It's, but you didn't then? Well, it was a lot more predominantly thoroughbred. You yeah. know, we have a saying here that uh, the old uh, Kentucky hardcore thoroughbred people are called hard, bo hard boots. Yeah. Um, 
And so, you know, you go up just north of town into Paris or over a uh, kind of uh, west of town into Versailles, and it's just thoroughbred horses all over. And at that time, you remember in the 80s, we had the, I don't think the record has been broke yet for the the yearling that sold for $13.2 million as an, as an untested yearling. And that was the heyday, <clears throat> or one of the heydays of the thoroughbred industry around here especially the, not necessarily the racing, although there are three tracks and three main tracks in Kentucky. There's, a, there's actually one in Henderson, but um, the, the brood operations was the, seemed to be the central hub of the, of the brood and the breeding operations was yeah. this area. So it was from Paris, you know, 10 to 15 miles north to 10 to 15 miles uh, west to Versailles. And so all these tri-county areas of, of uh, of uh, you know uh, Fayette County and Bourbon County and, and Versailles, it was all all very uh, you know predominantly thoroughbreds. And then <clears throat> later, uh, kind of Kentucky Horse Park came along, um, and then kind of the world we we were known as more than just the thoroughbred capital of the world. We kind of took over as the horse mm-hmm. capital of the world. So. A lot of different breeds came in. A lot of the breed registries were headquartered at the horse park. So now, in, in the last 20 years, we've had a lot of different breeds uh, that have have shown up and have made their their home here. Um, of course, a lot of a lot of show jumping horses are here. Hunters are here. Three day eventing horses are here. There's quarter horses here. A lot of Rocky Mountain horses. A lot of racking horses. A lot of uh, Tennessee walking horses and it's a really nice mix of, of you know, breeds here now represented. Okay, so you shod here, and then how long did it take you to get into farrier education, and how did that happen? Well, it um, it didn't take me <clears throat> long to get into farrier education, but what happened was I was uh, doing the farms, and and that kind of backbreaking work where we would trim. 40, 50 head of broodmares a day and or do that many babies a day. And so, you know, unlike shoeing a horse where you can stand up and go to the anvil and, and, and get a little break for your back, when you're, when you're trimming horses, you've got a team of people holding a horse, another team getting the next horse, and a couple guys handing you tools. So if you, you can work as long as you can stay bent over. And that's what happens. You you know we were getting paid by the head, and we were. I, I used to time myself. We could get through a barn and and do about a horse every five minutes, and roll to the next barn. And you know I can remember waiting to the end of that last stall so I could stand up and get in my truck and drive to the next barn and have a break. So, what happened was my my back blew out again. The disc above the disc that they did surgery on when I was twenty five. Uh, uh, blew out and it was a, a massive bilateral blowout to where 90% of the spinal cord was a, was a, was occluded by the disc. Um, so it was a bad one. And at that point I had, you know, a house, a mortgage payment. I had vehicles that we, we I had bought. I had ch- child on the ground. I had an education and I thought, wow, this is, this is, uh, it doesn't seem like I can rely on my back. And it didn't seem smart for me to put my, myself, my family 
in jeopardy if my back were to continue to 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 blow out and become problematic because when you're when your discs blow out and they prolapse you you, you can't work you know you need to no, get I, that i've had it yeah only the once you beat me on that one but i i had it once yeah, yeah. you can't yeah. get up it doesn't matter what you yeah yeah i mean you can't anything. put your socks on no. uh, so uh, and as 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 the orthopedic surgeon would tell you, I needed more surgery, and I decided, no, I'm not going to do that again. So I <clears throat> happened to be laying in traction. I was in traction uh, two hours in the morning and two hours at night in the, while I was in the hospital. And my mom sent me a copy of the Rocky Mountain News, and I read an article about Joe Montana, who was a you know a right. Hall of Fame quarterback right. for the for the uh, San Francisco 49ers. And he had to have back surgery. And it was an article about his surgery, his rehab, and the doctors. And the doctors were quoted as saying that the majority of, of uh, back problems, uh, there's no correlation to surgery and healing. And so, you know, the jury was still out on that. They, you know, my first back surgery was a butcher job. I've got a scar about eight inches long in my back. Nowadays, they're not near as invasive. But I decided I wasn't going to have surgery, and I went to, to San Francisco, made an appointment with these doctors and their team, and they taught me this, um, this thing called lower lumbar spinal stabilization, which was kind of like the, the beginning of Pilates, basically nothing more than core strength yeah. exercises and stretching. So at that point, um, I had met a guy uh, named uh, Don Canfield. And Don had a, a school called the Kentucky Orshuan School that was, that was kind of run down. Uh, so I bought it and decided that uh, I would become a farrier instructor because, quite frankly, I was frustrated with the, the farrier training that I got because I felt it was a little bit incomplete and unprofessional, but that's the best we had. So I decided, yeah, maybe this is what I should be doing is, uh, is teaching school. So it, was, it gave me the opportunity to meld my academic world with my practical world and my God-given talents of being able to shoe horses. So that's how I got to school. From there, uh, I got into the AFA, uh, become, I became uh, active in the American Fairs Association, uh, represented us uh, on, as a board of director in some of the board meetings, I became uh, a competitor, got into competition, met some some guys like uh, Bob Marshall, uh, uh, Grant Moon, Shane Carter. Um, you know, some of these guys that uh, that showed me the light, so to speak. Then I got into competing, and it was you know that was all just after, by the way, Simon, the, the British invasion of farriers that came here in the eighties. Yeah. They've kind of re reestablished us and got reinvigorated uh, the farrier communities here. Uh, guys like Dave Duckett, uh, and I can go on and on, but these were all people that uh, were very instrumental and very influential in my in my career. So you got to school, and I know you rebuilt and moved closer to Lexington, didn't you? Yeah. You, you bought a plot of land and rebuilt from scratch. Right. And, and of course, we've just been there, and... Um, you know, I don't mind saying to you, it is the best laid out school I know in the world. And I've probably been to 30 farrier schools. Well, thank so you, So you, you obviously sat down with a piece of paper and worked out 
you know, how to do, how, what the best way it would work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew what, what, how we, the method that we taught, how we did it, what I needed, and what I didn't have in Mount Eden, and the, the building was just a dilapidated old building, but that being said, Simon, we trained some really top quality farriers somehow out of that facility anyway. No, it's not all about the facility, no. but but really, at that time, you know, farrier schools were kind of dictated by, the length of school was dictated by what the general public was willing to pay. And I was, quite frankly, tired of having the general public dictate how long it needs to train a farrier. I'd been doing it long enough that I knew how long it took. I knew that we weren't the same system as the British system, you know, the Worshipful Company Affairs and the, and the, regi- and the Fair Registration Council. How do you guys train fairs over there is, is a lot different, and it, it's not going to work here like that. But I thought I would take some of those elements, and I had happened to be lucky enough to have asked to, to lecture around the world, and I've seen a lot of schools and a lot of facilities, and then just kind of put those together on how how we work and what would be the best way to to lay a school out um, and that's what we did we we built a school and we opened up 10 uh, the new school 10 years ago yeah um, yeah and, uh, still called the new school yeah but, um yeah so so tell me something about the structure if if i'm an 18 year old kid or a 19 year old kid and i want to be a farrier and i apply to you uh do you have any criteria for accepting or we do. How so, does this work? so you've got to come with <clears throat> certain uh, criteria. One is that you have to demonstrate that you have some some level that you've worked with or traveled with a farrier, and you understand the work involved and what what you're getting into. Uh, they also have to write an essay uh, that we that we grade and score. Uh, there's all there's obviously a, a, um, a an age limit. Uh, you need to have graduated from high school. And really, you know, and as far as primary farrier education, it would be much easier for me to say, I, you can't come to school unless you've uh, already spent a year with a farrier before you get here. But that's not, in my opinion, my job. My job is to take somebody who wants to learn this. And if they have the aptitude and if they have the basic elements necessary, then we'll train them how to how to be oarsure. Our curriculum, which is something that I, I think separates us from a lot of schools in that we have an organized formal curriculum that has been looked at by the United States Department of Education, their personnel, and have approved it, that the curriculum uh, makes sense, goes through a logical sequence. And um, so we we will start you from ground zero and um, get, take you all the way through our seven sections, which are horsemanship, uh, gross anatomy, functional anatomy, uh, confirmation, uh, locomotion, lameness and pathology, and business. Okay. And, and oh, and farrier craftsmanship. And the basic course is how many months? Well, no one comes to our school for less than six months. Yeah. Now. But most everybody nowadays, Simon, because they kind of do their due diligence, we, talk, we like to talk to everybody before they come. Um, so we get the people that seem to be serious. And so they all, most everybody comes for nine months. And you, you told me a statistic today. 
because I know the thing that amazed me when I first came to the States was how many farriers go through farrier school and drop out after a year or two. But you, you drop out some, of the trade. Yeah, but you've got some really good high figures, haven't you? On that? Well, because we're <clears throat> accredited and through the, the Department of Education, <clears throat> we're held accountable <clears throat> to what we say, what we do, and one one of those accountability facets is we have to have some degree of of uh, following students through as they graduate to make sure that they're gainfully employed because students that come to school now, and, and that's one of the, the things that I, when we designed the school that I thought, why can any other profession go to college and get a guaranteed student loan and grant, and why not a farrier? So that's why we got accredited. So now students can get a guaranteed student loan, Pell Grants, it's opened up our students to a whole new uh, level of, of scholarships uh, that are out and grants that are out there. And so they can, you know, they can, they can get a grant to come to school. So as a result, the federal government holds me accountable. Yeah. And their, their basic point of view is, listen, you just can't take money without showing a product. So you need to show a product and that what you're doing is, is, is producing gainfully employed people. And, and that, that, Simon, is about 85% after, in, within the fourth year. Yeah. 85% of people that graduate from the Kentucky Orchard School are still gainfully employed in the ferry industry. And, and I think in most other schools in the States, it's around 5 or 10%, isn't it? Yeah, anecdotally. Yeah, but there's no really way to, 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 to try that. But another way that. you help your students is that you find them, uh, I don't know whether you call it an apprenticeship, but certainly to ride with somebody and, and work with an experienced farrier, don't you? Yeah, we call it an apprenticeship. Um, I think the academic academia might call it an, an externship, something like that. But yeah. basically, we understand how critical, it, it, critically important it is to a learn your basics, learn the fundamentals, and that's our job as primary farrier educators to teach the student the fundamentals in these seven sections: conformation, yeah. locomotion, anatomy, farrier craftsmanship. Someone has to teach them how to hold a hoof knife, how to stand underneath the horse, how to use a rasp, how to, how to develop an eye for, for level, for shapes, how to shape a front pattern, hind pattern. And what's most important, Simon, is it's not just teaching them that practical skill, but backing that up with a theoretical understanding of why we're doing this. So this is why we do this, and this is why it's important you need to learn this skill. This podcast is made in conjunction with the Farrier's Journal, a farrier magazine that goes out in seven different languages. And you can get your first copy free if you contact Sophie at sjcurtisbooks at gmail.com. Okay, uh, I'm going to uh, just throw quickly at you three quick-fire questions. All right. So I want to know, loop knife or straight knife? Straight knife. Chestnut or grey? Chestnut. Hot shoeing or cold shoeing? It doesn't matter. I can't, I can't pick a mare or a gilding, can I? Okay. You've obviously got one in mind. Okay. But uh, hot shoeing or cold shoeing? Hot shoeing. Okay. Now, I also need to ask you a deep philosophical question. And I want to know what is 
the greatest obstacle uh, that you have to overcome to become a success in this life? In this life or in this trade? You can answer either way. <laughs> if I could break it down to one word, Simon, I would say tenacity. Okay. Well, that's good. And uh, yeah, we, we certainly need that grit and tenacity in this right. trade. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, you, you've kindly allowed the Worship Company of Farriers to use your facilities here. And we had a great two-day session. Um, lots of students, the usual. Um, of some past, some partially past, and some sadly failed. But uh, great facilities. I'd like to ask you if you think there's some way that we can promote better the Worshipful Company of Farriers Associate Exam here in America. Well, uh, of course we can, because the more people that um, that earn this uh, this level of uh, farrier certification. Um, the more people will, will want to do it. Um, it's becoming more and more popular. Uh, I remember when we first started it, Simon, we had a hard time getting 12 people. Uh, now this time uh, we had 18 people and, and we had two goes of shoeing. And um, I think that one of the thing about farriers is <clears throat> we're very good in, in common sense. And common sense will dictate that Assuming, of course, you want to, to better yourself and you're always striving for, for excellence. And kind of like, you know, the quote from Aristotle as far as, you know, you're, uh, I'll let you quote the Aristotle oh, you, quote. That's because you've forgotten it. That's, that's what you've just done to me. I, I think it says that, um, that excellence is, is a habit and not an act. You yeah. have to be excellent all the time. You have to try and be ex excellent all the time. That's right. I can't give it to you word for word. You no. have, well, if you I could, good you'd want me to give it to you in the Greek, wouldn't you? No, that's close enough, Simon. You paraphrased it close enough. But, yeah. uh, but I think that given that people have a, a basic uh, need and desire to want to wanna, uh, continually get better, um, I think that as time goes on and more and more people get the certification, there's always, you know, especially in this xenophobic time right now, there's always going to be hardcore people that because it's not American, by God, you know, uh, uh, the Brits have been crapping on us and Stone Lay forever and they and won't let us win. And, you know, so there's a few of those holdbacks. Get hold of Redcoat or something, probably. Right. <laughs> but really, yeah. if you think about it, at the end of the day, yeah. it, it, it does what I've always uh, my philosophy has always been centered around, and that's do the right thing in the right time in the right manner, which is it's going to be better for the horse overall. Yeah. Any kind of higher level training or certification is going to be uh, better for the horse overall. And, you know, a, a healthy horse is a healthy horse industry. And, and in, in our industry, a lame horse only makes a couple people a lot of money. But when we lost Secretariat, there's a couple guys that made a lot of money trying to save him, but his gene pool was lost in our thoroughbred industry forever. Yeah. And that's a, it was a huge loss. So for the betterment of the horse, I'm thinking that, that people will see the, the, the skills that are developed, the, the, the upper level skills that are developed, and I think it will take care of itself. I don't think that you can publish it. I don't think you can advertise. And, you ask any farrier, I, I bet very few farriers will say they've got 
a lot of business from radio advertisements or newspaper advertisements or hanging your card in the tack. You, you get it through word of mouth. And I think yeah. what we need to do is, it's critically important, I think, Simon, that we keep the standard high, unyielding. Uh, we And I think that we should provide possibly a little bit more pre-certification clinics. Yeah, training towards it. Right. So uh, perhaps we could work towards that. And oh. you guys might be able to to send some guys over now and then uh, to help with, especially the theory part. That seems to be what we, we struggle with most here is, okay. is that theory aspect of that. Well, well, we'll discuss that again. But at this point, Mitch, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time out for this podcast. Uh, as I say, we've had a busy couple of days and we might just get the chance to have a pint of beer and we can go over these things again. So thank you very much. Well, Simon, I appreciate it. Uh, it's always a pleasure to see you. I've, I've, uh, we've, been, we've been buds for a long time and I've seen you in all around the world and it's always nice to have you in my home and in my home state and uh, you're always welcome here, so thank you. You too, pal, thank you. Yeah. I really enjoyed that uh, talk with Mitch uh, at his school in Kentucky. And, and I learned things about a friend who I've known for 30 years. You know, I never knew that he started out in a way as a cowboy. And, uh, you know, he talks about the first contact with the horses and sometimes how brutal that can be, throwing horses, shoeing them, branding them, breaking them in in a, should we say, the old-fashioned traditional way. So that was something new I learned from, from Mitch. He even described about the evolution of Kentucky, which I've seen in my time going over there, from it being predominantly thoroughbred to moving into uh, other breeds, and in that way, of course, being a far healthier industry, not relying just on one specific equine sport. And of course, we spent a lot of time talking about his school and his role as an educator and how we got into that. And um, if you've never visited uh, Kentucky Farrier School, uh, you ought to take the opportunity. Everybody's always welcome. Have a look around. And for uh, young farriers, uh, certainly in North America, or, or young people in North America considering a career in farriery, I would really suggest that you look into that school as a place, as a starting place, because as you can see, Mitch has thought long and hard about the fundamentals of being a farrier. He's also the only school still that I know of uh, in the States that's approved by uh, the US Department of Education and, uh, and it's the, he's the only one that gets student grants. So we spent a lot of time on that and that was really great. Mitch continues to run the school and teach there and also have, uh, has, has a wider interest in farriery and education. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email the hoof of the horse at gmail.com 
And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.